But additionally, and this is really the most important thing when it comes to failure modes or minimalism, is that the most important thing for every application that I've seen in my career is proper, consistent, thoughtful organization of code. If all of the code in your system is super well-named, super organized, composed of small units, and scaffolded in a way that if I'm just looking at the top level of your application, I can kind of drill down to the more specific implementation-y bits from some higher level thing that kind of tells me maybe, I don't know, what HTTP route I'm looking at. The better organized a code base is, the more stable and maintainable it's going to be in the long term. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Rollbar. Deploy with confidence more often, spend less time worrying, and more time on improving your code. You can feel safe knowing every error is reported in real time with Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Thanks to all of you who took our front-end feud survey. We have 94 responses so far, but we'd love to have 100. So if you haven't yet, help us out and enter to win a free JS Party t-shirt at jsparty.fm ff. Once again, jsparty.fm ff. We're recording that episode next week, so act now. Okay, we have a great episode for you starting right now. Hey, it's party time, y'all. What's up, JS Party? It's a great September day, a great September morn, according to uh, Neil Diamond. And we are excited to catch up with Justin Searles. Justin, hello. Hey, Nick. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you, too. Uh, I'm Nick. I'm going to be hosting today. And joining me as well is Suze. Suze, what's up? What is up? Thanks for having me back. Great, great to have you. And then we have Chris, aka Bone Skull. Bone Skull, what is going on? Hello, everybody. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> now I have September Morn stuck in my head, and I'm really excited about that. Neil Diamond fan. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we're here talking with Justin. And Justin, the first thing I just want to dive right in uh, to you with is some of your hobby horses or specifically repeated patterns of failure that you see. Do you want to kick us off with that? Okay, so we're just going to dive right in. Diving right in. Yeah, there's so many different ways that software projects fail. I started my career out doing kind of like big enterprise consulting for the public sector, financial institutions, and you know every project was two years, $2 million, and big waterfall systems and, and complex silos and stuff. And what that taught me, you know, was a lot of ways not to write software well. But what I think is so fascinating is that no matter how much the industry progresses, we keep getting stuck on the same handful of issues over and over again. You know, one that comes to mind right off the bat is just unclear expectations. Like our ability to communicate what software is, what it should do is so, so limited that even just getting, you know, a product owner or product manager, somebody in a business to like clearly decide what a piece of software should do communicate clearly enough to a developer, articulate like, uh, you know, what is required of that software. And then for the developer to have the listening and, you know, questioning and introspection capabilities to like successfully translate that into like, you know, buttons and screens and, and, and a user experience that makes some kind of sense. That should be the baseline. That should be kind of just table stakes, right? But to do that well puts you in the top 1% of software teams. And I think a lot about the fact that more nuanced conversations in that sort of exchange of just what are you even doing here? You know, like, uh, hey, business person, what's this feature worth to you? If it takes a week, maybe that costs five grand. If it takes a month, maybe that costs 30 grand. If it, if it goes on for a long time, how, how much are you willing to sink into this so that I know when I need to cut and run or call you up if, if things take too long, right? Like those conversations tend not to happen. Things like how long do you expect this piece of software to live? Does it need to live 
for one year, three year, five year? Of course, like the default answer, because business people are used to not getting a lot of money to build new things, is that it needs to live forever, but that's not realistic. And so we don't really think about like what level of fidelity we should be building stuff in. And so all of this just kind of gets silently presumed in the subtext by both parties whenever we're talking about building stuff. Then, And, you know, the, the net effect is that when things don't go well, we have realized that we had mismatched expectations about what we were building, why. Things like uh, the subtext of like, you know, like, well, what was the cost of doing nothing versus choosing a different path? What's the opportunity cost if we don't build this thing? Those conversations just tend not to happen in most teams. So do you think the the, the bigger disconnect is trying to work w- with, with a developer or a team to get what is desired built? Or is it really between the, the product owner and whoever the end user is? So is it building something that was the wrong thing, or is it building something that is the right thing, but it's not built the way it was supposed to be? Well, when I was speaking, I was mostly thinking about internal to engineering organizations, internal to businesses trying to build a thing to then give it to users. And of course, building the right thing and building the thing right are both responsibilities of kind of like the whole team. But what I'm really getting at here is that I feel like a lot of teams don't have the proper communication channels and muscle built up to know what to ask in sort of these conversations that become very routine, very mechanized of like, oh, every week we have a planning meeting, we go over this week's story cards or, or GitHub issues or whatever, and we triage stuff, but we don't ever really get into like deeper conversations about, you know, kicking the tires on stuff. Like, for example, like, Right now I'm, I'm selling my house. The weakest part of my house by far is the kitchen, which we never remodeled. But had I hired somebody to like remodel that kitchen for me, you can bet that I'd be telling him, look, I'm looking at moving out of here in a month. Like I want this to look really nice and show really nice. But like if you find something and it's going to cost me $10,000 more to like do it perfectly, please call me first. Please don't do that. And it's because, you know, in basic commerce in our lives as consumers, we think really hard about where our money's going and like, you know, what level of quality is appropriate or what the job isn't. And when we're getting a service from somebody, we tend to think in terms of how am I going to get value out of this? But once it becomes about software, the people buying tend not to have any clue what software is, how it works. All they really see are these gigantic dollar numbers that developers either ask for or earn as salary. And usually get stiff-armed or stonewalled when they start to ask about like how long something's going to take or you know try to get into details because developers tend to you know have built up a lot of defenses about being abused over you know deadline pressure and kind of other mechanisms of control that managers use to try to understandably arrive at a certain outcome with a process and with a thing in software that they just don't really understand so given that you're in a unique position with your company testable in, you know, that you can provide that outside opinion and that provide that outside clarity to teams who might be struggling and they're just not quite sure why, and it could be this specific problem. How do you actually approach that conversation with those teams? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the reasons why Test Double as a, as a consultancy, you know, like our primary service is, is we have senior developer consultants who join client teams and work alongside them and integrate with them over the long haul. The biggest reason why that's our service is because this stuff doesn't get fixed overnight. Learning how to build trust, learning how to collaborate, learning how to communicate, all of that stuff tends to take a lot of time. And and the problem states that got us to where we are, where, where maybe trust is low or collaboration isn't happening or people don't feel safe communicating openly and honestly, like to unwind that just takes a lot of effort. And so this specific conversation is really, it's a big chunk of like what I guess our sales process is. Just last night, I had a, a a friend of my wife's, Becky, is from college. She's she's a project manager now. She called me and the programmer who built 95% of this thing that her company is going to depend on, the programmer just ghosted. And now she doesn't even know what technology it's built in. She doesn't know if they have control of the source code. They don't know, you know where this thing's hosted. All they know, they spent a lot of money getting something, but they still don't have it yet. And now they also lost the person who's building it. And that's kind of where... <laughs> my head's at when I have these conversations is it's mostly about educating 
business people and managers to understand better what software is, uh, how software development works uh, at its best, and then how to even understand the failure mode that they're in. So I could, you know, explain the situation that they're in in the same way that if you got into some kind of legal trouble, a lawyer might have to let you know, like, hey, you're... (laughs) You're in it kind of deep right now, and here's what you need to be doing next. That's a big part of where I feel like we can rely on our experience as software developers by just utilizing a little bit of empathy and trying to make it understandable for for, for somebody else. Yeah, it's a great point in the chat actually from Rebecca that came in that says that um, they also think it's easier for the owner to understand what they're getting with things that they can see, which I guess means sort of tangible, um, whereas something such as underlying performance optimizations can be very difficult for them to see the value of that. And I'm I'm guessing that your position and everybody who works at Test Double has the opportunity to be able to break those things down, as you were just saying, right? Yeah. You know, before we were a, uh, you know, development consultancy as Test Double, my co-founder Todd and I were both at a, uh, a consultancy that helped companies adopt like agile software development practices and help entire teams and organizations sort of transform how they worked. And a big part of most of the, you know, agile methodologies results in some kind of demo happening with some kind of acceptance ritual where a business person will click through the screen that they just asked for and say, yep, that's it. Or no, this needs more work. And to get to that point required a lot of technical innovations to be able to just on a week turn around and get a deployment out that fast. You know, and obviously with where we're at now with push button everything, it seems trivial. But I remember even at the time, I had one client that was building a, uh, a bibliography and citation generator, like didn't have like a user interface at all. And really the end product was, can I tell this other service, you know, like how to properly cite a source in a research paper? And so we had to build a little bit of kind of like, you know, visual scaffolding so that the product owner could log in themselves, test it out, see whether or not like green light, red light, are things working or not working uh, based on an agreed set of criteria because there wasn't necessarily a user interface that they'd be able to see. And we took it upon ourselves as engineers to provide that to our customer, the, the product owner, so that they could make informed decisions without necessarily just relying on us saying, oh, just trust us. Right. Some of that, uh, you know, just trust us. There's other other points brought up in the chat. One is like the things that are invisible to the product owner that are part of the development process, like testing, like QA, like observability. In my experience and in some of the places I've worked, those things have all been all been devalued essentially because they're kind of abstract for a product owner. Do you see that happening a lot? Yeah, you know, and there are different ways to look at it. When I think in terms of transparency and communication on a team, I try to be really intentional about sharing information that a person can reasonably act on. Like, for example, if uh, my team tracks like the number of uh, story points that they accomplish every week, knowing that that's kind of like a, a, a number that only makes any kind of sense as a lagging indicator that's like a benchmark of their productivity over time. But then I start publishing like every single team's story points, which, you know, are not apples to apples comparisons across an entire organization. Somebody somewhere who's like probably got a financial brain as a, as a manager or a leader in a company is going to try to like, you know, spreadsheetify it, right? Because what you've just done is give them some kind of data point and they're going to try to optimize it based on what they know. But if like, you know, there's a particular detail in the implementation of how you go about your work. For example, testing, like you said, or maybe necessary refactoring before you implement a story. The more that you expose of how you work without the context of, hey, you don't need to understand this. You don't need to know about this. But like, just so you know, here's the 15 bullet points that we walk through every time we ship you something that works. If you just kind of give them a, hey, I'm, I'm going to spend a day refactoring. Is that Okay you're giving them a decision about something that they probably don't have context of, that they probably don't understand. And when you do that, you have to be open to the possibility. They're just going to say, well, no, I don't know why that's valuable. So could you just build the thing that I asked? Right. And that's why I think that a part of the professionalism of just being a software developer is to communicate in terms that give the people that we're working for 
the amount of context to actually make an informed decision that that they can make. Oh, this is probably going to take like, you know, three and a half weeks. And then in our heads, we're doing all the math about how long testing and refactoring and any sort of like necessary infrastructural changes that we're going to have to make are going to be. And, you know, only expose that to them if there's like a decision point that they could be well informed to make. Otherwise, we're just, you know, I guess, inviting unnecessary conflict and potentially kind of kneecapping our own ability to deliver the same kind of like level of quality that the customer surely wants. So kind of providing them with less of an a la carte menu of options because some things that um, we know are just not optional when it comes to delivering something that's high quality, right? Exactly. There's a reason that when like I ordered my Apple Watch, I didn't have like a, a checklist of, oh, do you want a battery in that? You know, like like <laughs> Apple's intentional about like saying like, this is the package, take it or leave it. And the reason for that is that when they give you an option, uh, they want it to be meaningful. It's why they don't list RAM on hardly any of their products anymore outside of Macs. Do you worry like in the context of like, for example, your kitchen remodel, those kind of decisions or, or, or the lack of transparency of things like that might lead to a much larger bill and it, it was technically necessary, but it doesn't achieve the goal of like selling your house right? or making things pretty enough to sell your house. Yeah. And, and that's why I think just tight feedback and showing your work as you go is really important. So uh, whether it's a kitchen remodel or a piece of software, if, if I'm paying somebody money and they disappear for three months and I can't see whether they're making progress or not, uh, I have every right to be concerned but if they're turning new work around every day and, and uh, you know, there's like a, a live website up that I can kind of play with and click around and, and I have access to and they're also kind of giving me on a daily basis, hey, here's what's new today, you know, almost like a rolling kind of change log of things. All that stuff works to build up my trust that, you know, you're driven, you're for real, you're working on the things that I'm asking. And whenever there's an issue or anything to discuss, um, you know, people are pretty adept at picking up the cues as to whether or not you're hearing them and taking their concerns, you know, fully into account. What's up, JS Party people? Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? Well, with Raygun Air and Performance Monitoring, you have all the information you need at your fingertips to quickly find and fix errors and performance issues across your tech stack down to the line of code. Raygun makes it easy to monitor the impact of your performance improvements, quickly identify issues across web and mobile apps, and see how your code performs in the hands of your customers. This saves you time, this saves you money, and this saves your sanity. Head to Raygun.com to join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, Raygun.com to give them a try with a free 14-day trial. Continuing our discussion on patterns, another thing that, that I know you're interested in, Justin, is minimalism. Why do you think that that's important and how do you go about considering minimalism in your, your designs and your apps? Yeah, so I think that I'm almost ideologically a minimalist and it's a learned thing. I travel very light in a 19 liter bag that I can, you know, live off of and for, for months on end. Even here at my house, I own exactly two pairs of pants and five t-shirts I tend to appreciate that added complexity weighs me down, not just in the sense that I've got all these assets to worry about, things to track, like in software, I don't know if I've got a whole bunch of dependencies and I, I have the actual physical task of having to upgrade them all. It's that the cognitive load on me of all these different things that either I have to keep track of or that present themselves as like ways for stuff to break uh, later tends to be something that we don't think a whole lot about up front at the moment where that complexity accretes. And, you know, I think a lot of in terms about minimalism with software in terms of dependencies for that reason, because, 
You know, when you have a certain task to do, let's say you pull, you know, the next issue and and you're thinking through like the requirements and you could say, well, this is like, you know, the first time this application is going to need to have a concept of roles, different people with different roles and privileges. You know, I could either pull in a package that does that for me or I could build my own. It's a build versus buy decision. And I think that especially with a combination of factors in JavaScript, the fact that uh, JavaScript has no standard library effectively, that uh, it's got a lot of you know sharp edges, unintentionally so. Even though it's gotten a lot better, that's the environment that a lot of us grew up in in JavaScript. And additionally, you know, NPM also grew up out of that. So lots and lots of small packages of varying levels of maintenance applied to them. And I think that that put a lot of us, myself included, into a state of like, well, if there's a thing that can already do this and it's well-tested and it's well-used in a lot of places, it's better to just absorb a package than build my own little thing, even if it's just like one little module, even if it's not fancy, to do, say, role management. And I pick on JavaScript here because, you know, NPM is by far the most successful dependency distribution platform, as well as it's one of the few runtimes that can handle loading in multiple versions of the same dependency in a single runtime, which leads to this this tremendous explosion of transitive dependencies, where the average JavaScript application will have an order of magnitude more dependencies than, say, a comparable Python or, or Ruby application. And all that stuff just tends to add up. And in my head, starts to visualize as like a a Jenga tower of all these layers underneath me that I am now on the hook for long-term, even if I get some short-term benefit of being able to, you know, check the box and say that I've got like a role management system today, I'm now responsible for that thing forever. Yeah, I think that that's that's an interesting point. I'm curious, like what your thoughts are on it, like going forward from there, because if you do choose to go the route of like, doing your own at the cost of, of having to maintain it. Do you think that that might cause you trouble later down the line when, when requirements slightly change, whereas, and then you might have to pull it out and, and put in something else, or I guess I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> well, you know, I think that the fallacy of the build versus buy decision of whether to roll your own code or to adopt a, a dependency to do it for you is that like, well, if I write it myself, then I'm on the hook. I, I own that thing. But the, the reality is that Whichever way you do it, you own that thing. You're going to be the one responsible for figuring out how to make the system keep working as needed uh, over time. And so it's just a series of trade-offs like any other. Um, You know, over time, as I became more competent as a programmer, I realized that, like, you know, a lot of things that sound hard at first, there's a pretty straightforward, simple way to, to implement them. And... I got more comfortable just rolling my own solution to lots of common problems, especially once I'd seen, I don't know, role management for the 50th time uh, in a web application. It doesn't scare me in the same way. I, I, I'm not afraid that there's going to be some you know, hilarious concophony of edge cases that only a third-party dependency can provide me. But additionally, and this is really the most important thing uh, when it comes to failure modes or minimalism, is that the most important thing for every application that I've seen in my career is proper, consistent, thoughtful organization of code. Like, if all of the code in your system is super well-named, super organized, composed of small units, and uh, scaffolded in a way that, you know, uh, if I'm just looking at the top level of your application, I can kind of drill down to the more specific implementation bits from some higher level thing that kind of tells me maybe, I don't know, what HTTP route I'm looking at. The better organized a code base is, the more stable and maintainable it's going to be in the long term. And if you're a developer or on a team that has gotten very, very good at writing very consistent, well-organized code, the concept of writing more of it becomes less scary because the total cost of ownership of like the marginal module goes way down when they're not so accidentally creative and disorganized. Yeah, but doesn't that kind of go against minimalism too? Because now I'm, I'm thinking back to a JS Party episode a couple of episodes ago with Ahmad Nasri where... He's basically stating that like, if you do go that route where you're building the role management system, now you're in the business of building your product plus 
being a role management building team and having to to deal with both of those. And does that go against minimalism at that point? You know, I think I think that it really it comes down to how do you visualize the application. So when you're visualizing the application as the number of lines in your Git repository, then yeah, it seems very counter to minimalism to be building a lot of stuff that is, you know, vital to your application, but maybe not core to it. But when you visualize your application as every line that you wrote, plus every line in every single NPM package that you're sucking in, uh, and you realize that you're just the tip of this massive glacier, in that broader context, a decision like, yeah, I'm going to write 75 lines to handle this this role management stuff. And it's not a full-blown role management solution. It's just enough for what this particular system needs. I think that pulls it into a perspective where you can make a, a rational and informed decision to just keep things tidy, keep, keep things clean. And the again, if you're super consistent, the marginal complexity and, and, and cognitive load of, of each additional line of code actually goes down significantly. Yeah, in, in some cases I can, it, and it's not in all cases, obviously, because, you know, it depends, trademarked um, phrase that we love to say. I think you can apply minimalism in the context of both build tools or like the building process or just like the the actual scaffolding process for, for teams to, to run and build and test and um, actually, you know, code stuff in their development environments can become more minimalist as a as a result of that again depending on whether you pick any tools from npm to do that that task for you but also there's a potential for there to be minimalism in the actual final output size especially when we're talking about javascript right um, and it goes back to what you're saying where if you just implement the bare minimum thing that you actually needed that can actually result in um, better outcomes for the user as well and, and the user is benefiting from minimalism too Suze, that's a great point. And I think that the the reason that I use the word ideology to describe how I think about minimalism is because it's not just about code. It extends to what we're even building, right? Like, what kind of applications do you really like to use as a user? For me, it's purpose-built, small, lean apps that probably don't have a lot of configuration options that they give me a way to do something. And if I don't like that way, then I could stop using that app. And if I do like that way, then I can free my mind of, you know, uh, 80 different checkboxes and ways to customize. And the number one, I think, vector for complexity in uh, most software applications is, uh, you know, what I call the complaint to checkbox pipeline of <laughs> anytime somebody complains about something, it's, oh, I wish this worked this way, or you get a piece of feedback, or, you know, a business, uh, uh, your product owner says, hey, somebody else in the business wants this to work that way. And the superficial thing to do is like, well, we could just make a checkbox for that. We could just make an option for that. And you could implement that uh, and make it work that way for that person. But of course, then the cost is that your application becomes not just, you know, that's not just one more if else somewhere. Like your application, the definition of what it is, is like a combinatorial multiplication problem of all of the options that you've done so far. And if you've ever maintained a library uh, or, or that, that, that took in options and had a whole lot of configurability, you realize like it just becomes a test, almost untestable, almost unknowable whether a particular set of configurations is going to work. Uh, and, and so that's why I think minimalism as an ethos makes a ton of sense to just say, okay, so like, let me hear your complaint. Let me see if I can identify a, a root cause way in my core design like, like the, that I can change how it works to accommodate that and make not just make it better for you with a checkbox, but make it better for everybody who uses this thing. Or maybe I built a thing with my taste and your taste isn't suited for the thing that I built. And I'm sorry. And you're going to have to find another thing or live with the way that this works. And having that kind of backbone requires having, you know, autonomy and authority and permission to make hard decisions and tell people no, which, of course, is another way that a lot of teams fail. Yeah, I mean, so Mocha has, I don't know, off the top of my head, maybe 25, maybe 30 command line options. And I have, I have uh, like, rejected proposals for more than twice that amount. Like, it's, if, if I was to add every single option that every single person wanted, it would just become, it, yeah, it's like an exponential growth of, of 
maintenance burden and, and awfulness. And the way that, that uh, I've found, and, and this may, may not be applicable in, in you know, necessarily your, your, your situation where you're working with businesses instead of you know, open source, is to develop a way for them to fulfill their own needs by, I don't know, a plug-in system or something like that. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking too, like in terms of a command line utility, for example, like that, like one simple solution to get a lot of people what they need might just be like having a a good consistent output that you can pipe into other commands, like a real Unix philosophy of being able to take it and pipe it in and do whatever you want and just build up these chains. Similarly with um, with like a front end or, or with an application, maybe your escape hatch is something like you just have a robust API that they can plug into and, and do things with. Yeah, I love all of that. Chris talking about Mocha with, with having tons of options. We have a, a test framework that we wrote too called Teeny Test. And it has, if you ask me how many command line options it has, maybe three. But what it does have is it has like a, uh, a way to write plugins for it that can hook into literally every single thing that it does. And to Nick's point, because all it does is output tap, the test anything protocol, it can be piped, you know, eight ways to Tuesday and run in a parallel fashion and stuff. And so like it has the extensibility and it has a set of like plugins that you could either roll your own or, or, or pull in to get the level of kind of bullet point features somebody might be looking for without necessarily saddling a single code base with hundreds and hundreds of ifs and else's to kind of consider every single bizarre edge case. And this is exactly why I use tape for very, very similar reasons. You know, a few options easy extensibility and also outputs tap. So I think we're on the same page there. I get asked a lot about why I use tape and some people haven't heard of it just because I think it's been around for a while. It doesn't have async await support out of the box or promise support out of the box these days, but that's that's easily, easily resolved. And so a lot of people haven't seen it before and they do say, why don't you use Mocha instead? And I said, well, this gives me pretty much everything that I need and no more than that. So. Yeah, it's like it's there's a, a philosophical difference too, like in terms of. So if you look at something like Mocha, which is maybe halfway between uh, tape and and something like Jest, where it's just like enormous and and totally configurable, right? And some people prefer one thing or the other. I'm kind of curious, how does that relate back to this this idea of, you know, saying no to options in the business, like. What if really what you're trying to build is this very complex thing that does everything? You know, is that just a recipe for failure? Because like we've seen with Jest, no, that's that's successful and it works for a lot of people. Getting back to the very first thing that I was trying to describe as being like a failure mode is a clear expectation setting. This doesn't become a problem because software systems have too many checkboxes. It's a problem when it's death by a thousand paper cuts of unplanned features, <laughs> uh, where taking the time to understand what was going to be built up front and know like, oh, wow, the, the, you know, to your point, like this business has 8,000 permutations that need to be able to be configured for each licensee of this software. If you tell me that on day one, I'm going to really take seriously that I need to have a data driven, you know, probably a schema around that piece of data to like be able to validate a proper configuration and a whole subsystem that just focuses on, you know, making that configuration sacrosanct and whatever it looks like, whether it's a rules engine or an adapter layer or something to allow the, the kind of core functionality of the system to respect lots of variability based on configuration. But like what ultimately happens, right, is like people typically build an MVP that works one way. And then on week three, it's a, they have to add a second way. And then on week seven, it's like, oh, and it has to work in this third context too. And all of those just get kind of, you know, shoveled into like a router or in a controller or, you know, an, a, a branch and like, you know, a, a model code. It's not really, there's never the rainy day that you're like, ah, yes, at the fifth checkbox, that's the moment when I need to like zoom out and, uh, you know, thoughtfully refactor everything because normally it's that team that that would struggle with re-architecting something, especially when it's still new. So I guess the last point uh, to wrap up this section is how do you instill that um, mindset of constraints to the business owners or the 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 stakeholders in the project? You know, I think that the 
The number one thing is to make sure that you're doing everything that you can to support them and that they be empowered to actually make a decision. The hardest thing about being a product owner or when companies struggle with strong product management, the number one reason that they fail is that they are not really fully willing to give that person the ability to make decisions, you know? And so if, if, if that person has the authority to, and has been empowered by and has permission to say no, then a lot of good stuff can happen because then you can kind of work with them and negotiate with them in good faith in an ongoing way and develop a rapport and develop a way of working together. But like, if what they're really doing is just kind of a, a human router of like, you know, thousands of other business interests, and they just kind of have to say yes to everything by default, you know, you're going to arrive at outcomes that look more like this one. And, you know, I think back a lot to uh, old quote from Johnny Ive with, I think it was probably the second or the third iteration of the iPod. And I remember, you know, at the time, the kinds of things people were really angry that the iPod couldn't do stuff like didn't have an FM radio tuner, (laughs) which sounds quaint now, like, What Johnny said in this interview was like, we are very careful about adding new things to our products because once you add a new thing, you can never take it away. And that is the same way that most software that we write for businesses work. Uh, the, The permission to add a new feature, to add a new test, to accommodate somebody's need uh, is usually given. But like once we forgot why we did that, we never feel safe just taking it away. Uh, And the pain that that might cause somebody downstream is always higher than we bargained for. Let's just hope that's not true with the touch bar. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm on your team then, Nick. What up, friends? You might not be aware, but we've been partnering with Linode since 2016. That's a long time ago. Way back when we first launched our open source platform that you now see at changelaw.com, Linode was there to help us, and we are so grateful. Fast forward several years now, and Linode is still in our corner, behind the scenes helping us to ensure we're running on the very best cloud infrastructure out there. We trust Linode. They keep it fast, and they keep it simple. Check them out at lino.com slash changelog. All right. So last section in our talks on minimalism, uh, we did invoke just tap tape teeny and mocha. And we have Justin and Chris here, so I think there's probably a lot of testing knowledge here. So I, I just have to ask Justin, um, what's, what's your approach or what are your thoughts on testing? Do you, are you pretty good at it? <laughs> well, we named the company Test Double as sort of a joke. If you're not familiar, Test Double is just a bit of jargon that a, a fellow named Gerard Mazaros uh, coined when he was writing a book called X Unit Patterns about unit testing. And it just means like a fake thing that you use to stand in for a real thing in your test. I think he was probably referring to like a stunt double. And it's anecdotes like those that you get with my level of experience, but I'm not sure that high quality <laughs> ability to write tests is necessarily uh, that much better. But honestly, these days when I think about testing, my primary focus is on making sure that people are well situated to get a good return on their investment. You know, it's still the case that a lot of systems have no tests. Uh, it's still the case that um, the people who do have tests are sort of just doing it because a testing sounds good or because somebody mandated that everything be tested. Uh, but beyond that, there's a tremendous value in asking the question of like, what do we want out of our tests? How much are we willing to invest? And will we know whether we're getting a good ROI out the other end? And what can we be doing to set ourselves up to be even able to answer that question? So thinking about the individual purpose of each test and and kind of talking through that and designing specific tests for particular uses, as opposed to just sort of like a Boolean state of is tested, is not tested. Those are the sorts of conversations that I find really fun and engaging when I'm 
working with a new team. So how do you determine if you're getting value from your testing efforts? I'm curious if anyone else on the call has an opinion on that. I think it's good if things get caught before they go out to production. I think that's like probably a very obvious statement to make, but it's valuable if it's catching things that humans are missing, in my opinion. And then you can always talk about how you can improve things so that you don't even have it get to the point where the tests fail. But that's definitely the number one advantage that I see, that sort of feeling when you're like, you feel so much relief because you're like, oh, thank God that didn't go out to production like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's way better than my answer. I was just going to say that my my test coverage number is green. You just like the the accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I find it valuable when a test that was already written, and so you go and you make some unrelated change, and that in a test breaks somewhere else. That tells me that I've done something right <laughs> in writing that test. Now, you can go overboard with that almost daily. Like if if I make a change in a test break, well, then I probably at least written a test that is not useless. It may, as I said, it may go overboard where it just becomes, you have so many tests that are so tightly coupled to your implementation and you can't make a move without breaking a bunch of stuff. That's, that's going too far. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely expect tests to, to fail and I am, I am happy when they do. And so I feel like I've, I've, uh, I'm on the right track there. Yeah. And I think that's actually probably a good way to talk about, um, what's our purpose with each test that we write and the way that I arrive at that usually, especially when I'm looking at a test or, or watching people, um, writing tests on a team is I ask, okay, so like, why should this fail, right? Like, what is something that could happen that you would expect to cause this test to fail? And that'll tell you why that test exists. One example might be um, what I call contract tests. Let's say that you're in an organization where you depend on a, a microservice that is managed by a different team, and you have very particular Uh, expectations of how that service behaves. Maybe like you call a certain number of APIs in a certain order and you need to expect a certain stateful outcome from that. And you're the only person who uses it that way. A contract test where you encode your expectation of how that thing should work and you actually commit it into their repository so it runs as part of their suite. When should it fail? Well, when they made a change that violated your expectations of how that service should work. And why is it in their repo instead of your repo? Because like you want that failure to get as close to the person writing the code in the moment that they're thinking about whatever change broke them so that they can make the effortless and cheap fix. Whereas like, you know, in most organizations, what would happen is either it goes all the way to production, you find out, or it's something that like, you know, is in my integration test suite that I verify, but by then maybe that thing, that microservice was deployed weeks ago, uh, and it's far out of the mental context of the person, right? So uh, when I'm looking at a particular test, especially one that fails often, um, uh, those are the kinds of questions that I'm asking because you can, you can be much more targeted we're allowed to have as many test suites as we want. We can we can have as many names and memes and and patterns of, of tests as we want to have. They don't just have to be kind of one gigantic bucket of them sitting in one folder or two folders, one for unit tests and one for integration tests. We can design them to be purpose built um, and 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 fit into certain classes. And it's not just about getting to a hundred percent coverage number. It's about making the computer do work for us, right? Like they serve us and and not the other way around. This is kind of similar to a thing that Node does in other projects. Uh, Mocha does a little bit about uh, of this, but other projects are trying to adopt. There's a, um, a tool uh, Node uses to test itself called CITGM, which is Canary in the Goldmine. And so what that does is it takes the version of Node like a pre-release version of Node, and it it runs the test suites of like, I don't even know how many, maybe it's 50 of the top packages uh, on NPM or something like that. And it, it runs those test suites. And if Node does something that breaks its dependence, Node's going to know. And in fact, this happened 
just a couple weeks ago um, before before a node release where they made a change in node that actually failed Mocha's test suites. And they found that out, not me. And so they came to me and said, uh, this is failing, what's going on here? And so I, I went into Mocha and I, I, I fixed the bug going forward. But unfortunately, because um, not everybody's going to upgrade Mocha, um, and, but they might upgrade Node, it was basically impossible for Node to make that change. And so they had to drop the change that they did. But we'll do this where uh, we just actually started pulling in. Now, we don't use Webpack, but we started pulling in Webpack as part of our testing suite. And we want to make sure that when you use, when you bundle Mocha with Webpack, it, it doesn't fail. And so, um, like, we do that with Chai and with some other, like, required JS for some reason. But that's a way that, that open source projects can kind of do a, do a similar thing. I, is that kind of the same idea? Oh, yeah, totally. And, and the funny thing about it, of course, is that this is an example where tremendous amount of focus and sort of the... You know, when you're working on an open source thing, at least this has been true in my experience, you're doing it on your own time. For me, it mostly comes out of evenings and weekends. No one's going to give me an A plus on a performance review because I had 100% code coverage because of like my library, you know, is is really well tested, right? And so it's a forcing function. It's a, it's a focusing constraint to say like, I'm not going to spend time writing tests that aren't going to be valuable to me later. And that ultimately means that I need to have a mechanism for discerning what's going to be useful and what's not going to be useful or valuable as a test. But I think that like for most teams, as you socialize the idea that everything should be tested and then kind of call it a day, you end up in a case where you have a lot of tests that are written that like, you know, the lowest common denominator between them all is like they make sure something works. Or even less, like they exercise functionality in the system and it's not even really clear how much of the system they're really asserting does work. And when you don't know exactly why, if a test doesn't encode either through the type of test it is or like what the test says that it does or what it's trying to do, like, you know, you've got all these ways to express like inside of the test when you're writing, like this should do this when this happens because yada yada, that way later on, five years from now, some new developer comes in and that test is failing. Like the ideal case is that they can know when it's safe to just start deleting old tests of functionality that isn't important anymore or that aren't providing value. But like the status quo for our industry is that once a test gets committed, it becomes somehow uh, sacred and we never actually feel safe deleting it. And so you see these build times just kind of super linearly grow over time where like, you know, after a year, maybe it's like a 30 minute thing. And then after a few years, it's like, oh man, we've got two hours. We've got to parallelize this build. Uh, and, and no one ever really feels like they have the permission to trim those down because no one really understands what each test is doing. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That makes me want to go back through a bunch of old tests and, and make sure I understand, you know, the the why. If the program we suddenly decided to, I don't know, disable some feature, like what tests then would we expect to be removed? And do I know that even? And so if I'm not unable to answer that question, well, that seems like kind of a a problem waiting to happen. And another thing that we can think about too, and this kind of gets back to minimalism is I had a really fun experience at a client a few years ago and uh, they were just doing tests for the first time. It was like a group of 40 people. And they're like, well, we've never written a test before. That's why you're here. Teach us how to be a good organization, I guess. And one of my projects there was helping uh, a small group of three QA develop, uh, QA engineers and they, you know, had a lot of, you know, technical knowledge. Uh, they, uh, a couple of them knew Ruby. Uh, a couple had used Selenium before. And they were asking me, like, okay, so what kind of integration test should we write? And I could have put them down the path of just like, oh, well, see what the app does. Look at the criteria of, like, their specifications. And for each story, make sure that you got, like, a thing that clicks through the browser and does it. I'm like, you know what? Like, that's going to lead to the same outcome of like two years from now, you're just going to have hours and hours and hours of redundant looking things where like 90% of the actual activity is like signing up new users for the 80th time in, in a test suite. And so I said, instead, like, 
I, I went up to a whiteboard and I drew a like a five by five grid. And I said, okay, so like there's 25 boxes in this grid and like each box is a minute. So you have a budget of 25 minutes and your build is never, ever, ever going to be slower than that or you're going to start throwing away tests. And I want you as a QA department to work with the business to figure out what's the most important stuff that you need to make sure works before a production deploy. And that way, as part of their kind of, they were also adopting something akin to continuous deployment. That way, what they could do is guarantee to the business that testing isn't going to hold up a deployment for more than 25 minutes. And it also, again, forced a value-based decision criteria for like, eh, like, could we make this test faster? Could we make this part of the system faster? You know, is it really important for us to test this kind of musty, you know, admin page when we could just do that manually uh, and and get stuff out to production faster? And making those kinds of ROI-based decisions on is this worth automating uh, uh, was really, really, I think, productive for them. Should we wrap there? Yeah, yeah. I think that's good. There's so much more I wanted to ask, but yeah. <laughs> well, I'm happy to come back if you'll have me. <laughs> Absolutely. And we use this as an excuse to call out just if sales is comfortable having people reach out to him on Twitter, if they have follow-up questions or something like that, maybe we could have a comical little, well, I would love to ask you so many more questions, but if I was to find you on social media, would that be oh. okay? Wow. Excellent segue. That was very graceful. Uh, yeah. So I am a, uh, a wide open system. I have open DMs. My Twitter handle is my last name, Searles, which phonetically spelling it is difficult. So it's like pearls, but with an S instead of a P. And yeah, I'd love to uh, hear from anyone listening to this. If I can help you out in any way, that's literally my job. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you all. Comment on this and every episode of JS Party on changelog.com. Pop open your show notes, follow the discuss on changelog news link, and keep the conversation going. This episode of JS Party was hosted by Nick Nisi with help from Suze Hinton and Chris Hiller. Our special guest was Justin Searles, and your producer was me, Jared Santo. Our beats are created by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and they're inspired by our favorite old video games. Can you guess which ones? Special thanks to our longtime sponsors, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Next week, we're talking Redux and Redux Toolkit with its lead maintainer, so stay tuned for that. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.